Philippians chapter 3. So thank you. Would you stand if you can? Let's start in verse 4 to get the context fresh here. Here's the word of the Lord. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted, that's in the past, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Oh, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, filthy garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. No, no, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Please be seated. Lord, we ask you, we say amen to Dan's prayer. We beg you to help us. The whole service is supernatural because we worship a supernatural God. So we need supernatural enablement. Pray that your Holy Spirit be working in us, through us. Let the Spirit of God apply the Word of God to the people of God, we pray. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. Help me to be bold. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our salvation. We also pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world. I want to lift up brothers and sisters, especially in Brazil, as they are going through a, a hard time there. I pray for the church there. Raise up faithful, bold pastors. To proclaim your truth, Lord. Help your people to remember that you are the Lord of the church. 
And help us also here to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. For those who have children, especially those younger teenagers, a word that always comes to our mind is grow up. It's time to grow up. When are you going to grow up? To grow up is basically to mature. We, we long for people to mature. Maturity. Amen? Don't, don't we long for that? Maturity. And God made us, you think about the, the physical realm, the physical body, and there is a process of maturation, maturity, from uh, infanthood, from childhood to adulthood, you can see that there is a process of, in which the individual becomes more and more mature. Physically, you see the bones become more mature, the muscles, muscle maturity, the, the reasoning, the emotions are supposed to become more mature. Sadly, we live in a society that more and more people are not maturing as it comes to the intellect, responsibilities. But the same applies to the Christian life. We are supposed to grow. The Lord used this metaphor of babies growing to maturity. Paul says in Ephesians 4, that Jesus, when He ascended, He gave to the church gifts. And one of the gifts were the pastors, the teachers in the church, in order to do what? To help the church to reach the mature manhood, maturity. The author of Hebrews also says, hey, by this time you should be teaching others. By this time I should not be giving you milk. You need to grow up. You need to mature. So the Bible also applies this. And especially for us, it's important to think, what is Christian maturity? And as we are walking through Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, we come to a very important part of his testimony. is when he tells us where he is right now in his spiritual life. Almost three decades, almost 30 years after being saved, Serving as an apostle, the most brilliant theologian in the church, a church planter. Now he's opening his heart and showing his family in Philippi and showing all of us what Christian maturity looks like. Christian maturity has nothing to do primarily with knowing a lot of facts about the Bible. There are a lot of people who have memorized many portions of the Bible, but they have no spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not winning arguments. Wow, he wins every single argument when it comes to theology. That actually might be the opposite of spiritual maturity. Having a long list of achievements for Christ. Professing Christianity for a long number of years. Being a member of a church for a long time. As Paul is about to show us, Christian maturity is the sober, sober, not sentimental, not fake, not superficial. It's a sober realization of how much you still need to grow in Christ. Christian maturity is the sober realization of how much you still need to grow in Christ. And it's sober 
Because it's easy to be fake and superficial. Ah, yes, I know how much I need to grow. And yeah, you are very arrogant and you think you know everything. So it's a sober realization of how much you still need to grow and, and how we must be pursuing this growth. Because it's one thing to know that you must grow and the other thing is what are you doing about that? So Christian maturity is the realization of how much you need to grow and the action. Not just knowing that you need to grow, but what you're doing to grow. So I have a list here. Christian maturity is demonstrated through the convictions that the more you pray, a Christian mature person will say, the more I pray, the more I want and need to pray. It's the opposite of a person who says, Oh, I have prayed for so many years. I don't need to pray anymore. No, the more you pray, the more you understand that you need to pray. The more you sing to the Lord praises, the more you want and need to sing praises to the Lord. The more you love the church, you realize how much more you need you and you want you love the church. The more you are humbled by the Lord, the more you want and need to be humbled by the Lord. The more you conquer for Christ, a mature Christian, we realize that there's much more to be conquered for Christ. The more you serve, the more you want to serve. The less you sin, the more you realize how much you need His grace to conquer sin. The less you sin, the sins that you continue to sin, you see how heinous they are. And even the small sins become Huge sins. That's a mature Christian. The more you give, the more you want to give. The more you die to yourself, the more you want to die to yourself. Those are some of the main aspects of a mature Christian. And we all here must be striving, pursuing Christian maturity. Because the Bible confronts us and rebukes us if we think it's okay to remain a baby in the faith. Now, there is a time, and it's very precious when someone is a baby in the faith. But you dare not remain as a baby. Amen? You need to grow. And that's what Paul is showing us here. So, as, just to refresh with the context of what we have in Philippians 3, you remember Paul is giving his testimony, and he's giving his testimony for two major reasons. To protect the church and to provide an example. Remember, Philippians is full of faithful examples so the church can follow those examples. So he's giving his personal testimony of salvation in order to protect the church from false teachers. And we see that in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And those are the Judaizers who are coming to the church and teaching false teaching. So, to protect the church and then to provide an example to the church so they can follow after, so they can imitate, as we will see, especially in verse 17. And by giving his own example, it's beautiful because Paul is showing that his own example is actually the example of Christ himself. So as you compare the life of Paul in chapter 3 and the life of Christ in chapter 2, you see how Paul is following after the pattern of Christ. We could call that Paul's kenosis, the emptying of Paul himself here. And it's beautiful. Because you see how Paul is obsessed with Christ Jesus. 
And we saw that in the preceding verses. It's all about Jesus. To know Jesus. His power. His suffering. So it's all about Christ. And that should not be just Paul, but all our, our lives should be obsessed with Christ. What do you want? Know Christ. What do you need? Gain Christ. So here is important because Paul has been talking so much about his heart for Christ. I long to know Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Gaining Christ. Being found in Christ. So it would be easy for some people to say, Wow, Paul, you have reached, you have accomplished the task, right? And these verses here, the next verses, is Paul's remedy for any misunderstanding. And he says, uh, 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 uh. No, I have not arrived there yet. Showing us Christian maturity. And the structure is very simple. Paul structured this verses 12 through 14 with two negative sentences counterbalanced with two positive ones. And it's beautiful. It's very clever how he writes, and especially in Greek. It's hard sometimes to get in, in English. That's why I'm putting some of the words so you can see the repetition of the Greek words. And that some translators try to capture that by keeping the same words here. Very clever how he structured his heart for Christian maturity. And the outline of this sermon will be very simple. We have Paul's evaluation, verse 12a, followed by Paul's determination. And then we have Paul's evaluation once again, verse 13a, Paul's determination. And then I don't have there, but number five is Paul's exhortation, verses 15 through 17. And it follows, if, if you think about this outline, look at that. Evaluation, determination. Sober evaluation, serious determination. This outline follows what a mature Christian looks like. Always a sober biblical examination of yourself, followed by determination to pursue what we need. So, let's go to verse 12a. So Paul says, No, not that I have already obtained. And the ESV has this. It's interesting that the Greek has no direct object. And I remember when I was a little boy studying verbs in Brazil, and then you have the transitive verbs. And the transitive verbs require a direct object. And I was like, why am I going to, why am I learning these things? And now once you start studying deep the Bible, like, oh, that makes so much sense. And it's interesting because Paul doesn't put a, a direct object here. So, you see, not that I have already obtained. And the question is, obtain what? Right? That will be the question. What? That's why the English version adds this. But Paul has no causing us to keep flowing from what he just said about himself and gaining Christ, knowing Christ. So the missing object is Jesus Christ. Not that I have already obtained what? What I just said, knowing Jesus, gaining Christ, being found in Him completely. Paul has not yet received the full reward of gaining Christ. Not only that, but he also says, now that I have already obtained this, or the ESV has, or am already perfect. The NAS says, have already become perfect. 
And the verb here, teleo, it has a wide range of meanings. So sometimes it can mean perfect, but I think the context here is important. I would not translate as already perfect. I would translate similar to the NIV. I like how the NIV has, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Because I think that's the idea behind here. Paul is using military language, as we will see. And what he's saying is, I have, an, I have not already completed my task. I have not already achieved the goal that we have as a soldier of Christ. I do not believe that Paul is talking... Par- because once you read, I have a, a, not already been made perfect. The, the first thing that comes to our mind is sinless perfection. And I don't think that Paul is talking primarily about that, though there is implication to that. When you see the word perfect, the first thing, oh yes, of course, but I don't think he's talking about primarily a sinless perfection, but as not arrived at that goal, his task, finish his task. So long as mortal life lasts, there is further progress to be made. Not until the end of the battle is the prize awarded. So for Paul, the battle is not over yet. He's breathing, he's alive. So he needs to keep marching forward. Advancing. Remember what he said earlier, to advance the gospel. And that's the idea here. But you think about Paul, pre-Christian, as a Jewish man. He believed he had already arrived there. Remember his earlier testimony? Blameless. Oh, as a Jewish, as a Pharisee, I had already achieved the telos of my life, the goal of my life. But now as a Christian, he looks at his life and he looks at Christ and he says, there is no way, there is absolutely no way that I can fully know Him in this life. From... His Christian perspective, he knows that his knowledge is partial. 1 Corinthians 13, for now we know in part. Paul has only tasted the first fruits of his salvation. We all here, like Paul, we have only tasted the appetizer of Christ. But there is an eternal banquet when we be just delighting and knowing Him for all eternity. Christ is like a bottomless ocean. And we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. There is no way to know Him fully and completely in this lifetime. That's why eternal life is what? To know God. To know the triune God. Because to know the triune God requires eternal life. That's what Paul is saying here. No, no, no. Not that I have already obtained this. I have arrived there. By no means. So, the sober evaluation is followed not by depression. I I have no... What should I do with my life? After 30 years following Christ, serving, being persecuted, planting church, and yet, I have not arrived there yet. Woe is me. No, 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 no. Look how he says. Following to verse 12b. Not that I have already obtained this or have already accomplished my task, but I press on. That's Christian maturity. 
I keep pressing on. And uh, I strongly believe that Paul is using the military language here. Uh, most commentators, they take, and if you read here, even translations, it seems like Paul is using the athletic or the, the running imagery, but I strongly believe he's using actually military language, as we will see. First of all, by the words that he used here, but I press on. This verb, dioko, belongs to the world of hunting, war, rather than of the athlete. It does not properly mean to run, but to pursue, to chase, to hunt down. And yes, of course, running is part of war and battling, but you never see this verb as used primarily for running races. Okay? The same word is used in chapter 3, verse 6, when Paul says, As for zeal, awa, a persecutor. And here's the same Greek word. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? The same verb, dioko. Are you persecuting me? So I believe that Paul is using... You remember, Philippi became Philippi because of a battle. They became the special colony of Rome in Macedonia because of battle and war. So that city was famous for war. The citizens were very into war language, battle, soldiers. And I believe that's what Paul is doing here. And he continues, you can see by his next verb that he used. He says, oh, but I press on, I keep hunting down. And then he says, to make it my own. I think that's the one translation, to make it my own. And then he used again the same verb, but because Christ Jesus had made me his own. And this verb is a violent verb, actually. It's a very strong verb used primarily to acquire with the implication of significant effort was often used of a stronger one seizing and take, taking hold of a weaker one. So sometimes this verb is used, this word is used for unclean spirits coming and taking possession of someone. To take possession of someone. I think the NIV once again captures the idea. It says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. And let me try to explain my line of thought here, because these two words, these two Greek verbs, uh, the dioko and the katalambano, to pursue, to hunt down, and then to take over, is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament many times in the context of war. So here's one, two examples of the Old Testament. In Exodus 15:9, we hear about the armies of Israel, and they say, the enemy said, I will pursue, same verb, dioko, and we will overtake. In Joshua 10, 18, we read, pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. So, they see, Paul is using two words that were frequently used for military conquests. And if you want to use secular history, Diocasius, a Roman historian, he writes the following about Pompey. But when Pompey saw Artorsis fleeing, 
He pursued Dioko, and then he used the same verb. Catalambana, conquered him. Why am I saying that? Because I think instead of looking at the athletic imagery, the military imagery makes much more sense what Paul is saying here. He keeps hunting down. He keeps trying to take hold of Christ and Christ's things because Christ Jesus first took hold of him. And he is taking us back to the Damascus road. When Christ came and conquered Saul and made him his own slave. While Paul was fighting as a soldier of the kingdom of darkness, persecuting Dioko, hunting down the church, the Lord of hosts conquered him and made him his own. A trophy of mercy and grace. So Paul is taking us back to the his conversion time when Christ Jesus, he remembers he was the one hunting, trying to take hold in a negative way of the church and Christ himself, if Christ was alive. And then he says, ah, everything changed when actually Christ hunted me down and took possession of me. F.F. Bruce, he writes, Paul recalls his conversion as the occasion on which a powerful hand was laid on his shoulder, turning him right round in his tracks. And a voice that brooked no refusal spoke in his ear. You must come along with me. Paul was conscripted into the service of Christ, but never was, but never was there a more willing conscript. The passion of his life from the hour on was to serve this new master and fulfill the purpose for which he had conscripted him. Oh, to lay hold on that, as he put, for which also I was laid hold on by Jesus Christ. Every phase of Paul's subsequent life and action, every element in his understanding and preaching of the gospel can be traced back to the revelation of Jesus Christ that was granted to him there and then. The picture that Paul has here is of Jesus Christ laying violent hands, His violent mercy taking hold of Him. I was hunting the church and Jesus came hunting after me. I was trying to lay hold of Christians and bring them to the court. And actually Jesus Christ came and laid hold of me and made me His own. And if you remember in ancient times, once an army took hold of you, you became a slave. And that's why he presents himself in Philippians 1, 1, how? Paul and Timothy were slaves of Christ Jesus. And he adds Timothy because it's all, with all Christians the same. There's a, a beautiful hymn called, We Sing, We Sing the Glorious Conquest. By John Allerton. I'm trying to get the same so he can sing in church. Talks about the beauty of the grace and the violent mercy of Christ in, in saving Saul. He says, We sing the glorious conquest before Damascus gate. When Saul, the church spoiler, came breathing threats and hate. The ravening wolf rushed forward full early to the prey. Below the shepherd met him and bound him fast today. And from that day on, everything changed in Paul's life. 
He became a slave of Christ, a soldier of Christ. And we see that even by the words that Jesus Himself speaks about Paul. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, as Jesus is talking to Ananias, here's what Jesus says about Paul. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, conquered, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul became a slave by conquest. That's what he's showing us here. And that's why now his life is all about what? Pursuing, loving, treasuring his Lord because there is no better Lord than this one. And we think about Paul's words as soon as he's captured by Jesus on the road to Damascus, as soon as the violent mercy and gracious mighty hand of Christ takes over of Saul, Remember what Saul says? Who are you, Lord? Lord! Implying that now he's his slave, his servant. And that's what Paul is doing here. Now Paul is pressing on to take hold of that which Christ has for him because Christ took hold of him. That's the idea here. Now I keep pressing, I keep hunting, I keep trying to take hold of all that Christ has because Christ first took hold of me. And then he goes on. Once again, evaluation. Brothers, look at verse 13. Brothers. That's so beautiful. To think that a Jewish man would now call these Gentiles brothers. That's the power of the gospel. Brothers. His affection. And think about the military context here. He's treating this people in Philippi as his band of brothers in an army. We have been bought and united by the same blood of Christ. And now we are a band of brothers. Brothers. And it shows the maturity of Paul. Sometimes you hear people saying that they don't need the church. I don't need the church. Oh, I have my friends. I have my life. I don't need the local church. That's a clear demonstration of his spiritual immaturity. You have this man 30 years serving Christ. Almost 30 years being as an apostle. And yet, he says, I need you, brothers. You are my brothers. And that's with all Christians. Christ saves you and He places you in His army and it's demonstrating the life of a local church. And he says, brothers, I do not consider, important word, what he's saying here is not just a superficial outburst of emotion. No, he has considered from the word where we get logic. He has been thinking, he has been analyzing these things. And then he says, I do not consider that I have already made it my own. No, there is much to Hunt down. There is much to pursue. There is much to conquer for Christ's sake. As a soldier of Christ, Paul has yet much ground to press. Lives to conquer. Advance the gospel. Sins to be put to death. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if Paul, if Paul 
has not yet made His own. How about us? If Paul has not yet made His own, who are we to think that we have already arrived there? And then once again, we see that sober evaluation is followed by a serious determination. So he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have laid hold of it, but one thing, one thing I do. He's not downcast. He's not depressed. He's not frustrated. No. One thing I do. That's very important because sometimes people get frustrated with their present life and then it's just, ah, I've already sinned here. Let me just go on and keep sinning in these other areas. Paul says that's the mind of an unbeliever. Shall we sin more so grace may abound somehow or just be frustrated? Holy dissatisfaction must always lead to holy determination, holy devotion, and holy ambition. Holy dissatisfaction that we always must have. We must always be wholly dissatisfied with where we are. Thankful, yes, but dissatisfied. I need more, Christ. I need to know you more. So holy dissatisfaction must always lead not to depression, but to holy devotion, holy ambition, holy determination to keep changing. And that's what we see Paul doing here. So he says, but one thing. There is a big contrast. The Greek is beautiful. There is, you see that the, the English translations add, but one thing I do. There is no I do. It's just this contrast. But one thing, Paul says. And Paul is a one thing man. He's the man of one thing. But he could ask Paul, are you a pastor, an apostle, a, a, a Bible writer, a disciple, a church planter? What are you? Well, what would he say? They all come underneath this one thing. One thing. To pursue Christ. And everything else comes under that. The one thing is actually the most important thing. If you pursue this one thing, you will have all the other things. But if you forsake this one thing, you actually don't have anything. That's what Paul is doing here. And now he beautifully structures how he's going to be pursuing this one thing. He's very careful in structuring his goals. And it's, he follows the, the pattern of his letters of Sanctification. Put to death. Vivify. Put off. Put on. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So you can see, on the one hand, the things behind forgetting. On the other hand, the things in front ahead stretching forward. So briefly, let's see what Paul means by forgetting. What does he mean by forgetting that what lies behind? We are tempted to think about forgetting as what? Just erasing from our minds. As if we were able and capable of just erasing something from our minds. Because that's basically the idea behind the English definition. So, the Merriam-Webster's define forgetting as to lose the remembrance of. Being unable to think of or recall. 
But that's not the Bible's definition of forgetting. Primarily, to forget in the Bible is what? In your sins that we remember no more. To not act upon. That's what it means to forget. It's not to be acting upon those things. Not remember, not acting. Apart from senility, hypnosis, or brain malfunction, no mature person can forget what has happened in the past. We may wish that we could erase certain bad memories, but we cannot. To forget in the Bible means no longer to be influenced by or affected by. So one scholar, he writes, Forgetting did not mean obliterating the memory of the past. Paul has just recalled some of these things in verse 5 through 7. But a conscious refusal to let them absorb his attention and impede his progress. That's what to forget means. A conscious refusal to let the past absorb your attention and impede your progress. So we could see forgetting what lies behind as a synonym to not looking back. And the Bible has many calls to not be looking back. Do you remember what happened to Lot's wife? What happened to Lot's wife? Yes. Why? Yes, the looking back was not just the eyes looking to see what's taking place, but it's, oh, I wish I was there. My friends are there. My life was there. Remember Israel, the nation of Israel in the wilderness, and they're looking back to Egypt. Oh, the food there. Looking back, remembering, and letting those memories now hinder them from advancing. It was Jesus who said, No one who has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you think about the the wars in ancient times was very intense. The battle, as the two armies would run together. And you could see your brothers there, your co-soldiers dying. And maybe you're losing the battle. And it was very tempting to look back to see, what way can I escape and flee this battle? And what Paul is saying, no, no, no. No looking back. No trying to find escape to avoid these battles of the present. So he says, forgetting what lies behind. How we need to be reminded of that. We live in a time where everybody wants to bring your past. Either for you to boast or for you to be condemned. That's our culture. It's all about your past. What you did in the past. Things you didn't do, but somehow they can bring that to you. So what does Paul mean here by forgetting what lies behind? Just bad things? I would say no. Bad and good things. Christians cannot allow the, the things from the past related to failures, sins that we committed, sins that people committed against us, and the achievements that we had in the past by God's grace to hinder us, to be a burden on our shoulders, hindering us from advancing the gospel of Christ. Sadly, many Christians, they live just like a museum. 
They're living museums. They live off of the past, always complaining about their past, always trying to excuse their lack of spiritual progress on things of the past. Parental, financial, educational, racial, sexual, social issues become the great burden that prevent them from marching forward. So always looking back, and you've got to have something to excuse your lack of progress in the Christian life. Oh, something the past. Just don't know. The parents I had. My background. Always looking back and blaming there as a burden that cannot allow you to move forward. On the other hand, we have other Christians who are always looking back at their achievements of the past. Oh, when they know when they accept Jesus, when they were baptized, when they first went to church. And they keep comparing themselves what they did in the past with other Christians. And then they say, ah, now I can relax. Many Christians are self-satisfied because they compare their fighting, their battles, with that of other Christians. Usually those who are not making much progress. Had Paul compared himself with others, he would have been tempted to be proud and perhaps to let up a little bit. Who cares how much you achieved for Christ ten years ago? Who cares when you are baptized? Who cares how long you have been serving as an elder, as a deacon? The question is today. Today is the day. How is your life today? Are you hunting down, pursuing Christ and the things of Christ today? Don't tell me about the past. Oh, I did so much in the past. Now I can just relax. Retire. As if there was Christian retirement. And it's beautiful because when Paul remembers, when Paul remembers, the past is never to hinder him from moving forward. So, for example, in Romans chapter 15, when he talks about all that he has conquered from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And you say, all right, Paul, you're done, right? No, no, no. But now I'm on my way to Spain. And I hope to pass by you, Romans, and get your support. So he looks back and he sees the grace of God in his achievement. And the grace of God motivates him to keep pursuing more and more of Christ. So that's why he says, forgetting what's behind. And now we have the opposite. He's training forward what lies ahead. The verb means to exert oneself to the uttermost. It powerfully describes the need for concentration and effort in the Christian life. It pictures the ceaseless personal exertion. And that was the picture in ancient times, not of a person running to win a, win a race, but of soldiers running to the front line so they can take the adversary, the enemy, down and conquer them. And we see that the Christian life it's not a lazy life. The Christian life requires exertion. The language that Paul uses here, there is nothing of relaxing in the Christian life. There is nothing of just taking easy. Let go and let God. There is nothing of that. 
There must be concentration, focus of mind, discipline, exertion. Do you know why your spiritual life is a misery? Do you know why your spiritual life is mediocre? Because you have no spiritual discipline. You think that suddenly, just by coming to church, oh, you're going to be a mature Christian. I tell you, there are people who have been to church for 80 years. And they resemble much more demons than Christians. So Paul is very clear that he has not yet arrived where he needs to be. He has not taken possession of all that Christ has for him. And instead of getting frustrated, disappointed, losing heart, paralyzed, Paul keeps training on, marching forward. Because God's grace in us is never passive. God's grace in our lives is never passive. It's always violent, always active, always effective, always productive, always dynamic. That's how the grace of God is in our lives. So Paul says in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And look at that, what the grace does. Training Disciplining, using the rod in us. Disciplining us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous, Remember what Brian prayed right in the beginning of the service? To be zealous. Zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. So, what have you been using the grace of God in your life for? That grace that's very active, energetic, dynamic. How have you been using that grace in your life? I think that we all here would agree with Paul that I hope that everyone here would join their voices and their hearts with Paul and say, Amen, Paul. We all here declare, no, no, no. Not that I have already obtained it or have already finished the task. Amen? There is much to conquer. And let us not think, look at these words here. It's very tempting to look at these words and say, but that's Paul. That was the Apostle Paul. That's not me. That was Paul the Apostle. That's not me. I work as a landscaper. I work at an office. I'm a mom. I'm a painter. I'm not Paul. And Paul says, shh, be quiet. I'm your example, and you need to follow after. So, in 1 Timothy 1.15, 16, he says, This thing is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to, the world to do what? Hope to save sinners? To save sinners, and he knows because he was saved by Christ, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy 
For this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience, patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. So do not try. Don't dare to try to say that was Paul. That's not me, so that does apply to me. And in verse 17, look at chapter 3, verse 17. Philippians 3:17. What is Paul going to command? Brothers, join imitating me. And that's not an option, that's not an advice, maybe, I hope, it's a command. Join imitating me. So, just like Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I hope the members of this church are. We trust that you are. That's why we have you into membership in a church. If you are a Christian, you remember the last sermon I preached on Philippians. I talk about what a Christian is. He's one who belongs to Christ. Just like the Herodians, the, the Caesareans, those who belong to Caesar. A Christian is one who belongs to Christ. And you think about Paul, and that applies to our lives in the very same spiritual manner. Though not in the physical and the natural manner, but in the same spiritual manner. Just like Paul was hunted down and taken hold by Christ, so also we. We, just like Saul, just like any saint, any saved person, we were pursued by Christ, Dioko, hunted down. And then He laid those hands of power, mercy, grace that are very violent upon us. His cords of love took hold of us and said, You are mine. You are mine. You are my trophy of mercy and grace. You are my slave now. Not only slave, but a soldier of my kingdom. So if the Lord Jesus has indeed laid hold and seized you with His mighty cords of love, then He has changed the course of your life. He is way too powerful to conquer you and let you go your own way. His slaves belong to Him. His soldiers belong to Him. And they hear His voice and they obey Him. So Paul says, not that I have already obtained this. Or have already accomplished my task. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have laid hold of it. But one thing. And that's my prayer. That we would be a church of one thing. And all the other things would come under that. But one thing. A one thing church. See, the problem with so many churches that they are striving after so many things. So many things. And Jesus talks about that. There is one thing that matters. Remember Martha and Mary. There is one thing. You're all busy there, but there is one thing. And my prayer is that we would not, we would not look back, because that's very tempting, to look back 
and see all the accomplishments, all the achievements in the Christian life. Oh, look at how much we grew. Look at how much I grew spiritually this past few years. And suddenly you're tapping your own shoulder and say, how good you are. Just relax a little bit. No need to join the army. March forward. Suddenly you're looking back, looking at all the achievements of the past. And suddenly you're, I can relax now. I don't need to give as sacrificially as I gave before. I don't need to attend the Wednesday meetings as I attended before. I don't need to open my house as I used to open before. I don't need to serve as I used to serve before. Don't ever do that. Don't do that. That will destroy your life. There is a great example that most of you know. Mr. Turner, Ruth's dad. And that, as I was looking at this passage, his picture came to my mind. Because I remember when we were meeting here, we were facing, remember back in the day we were, I was preaching there. I just remember him in his old age, literally and physically forgetting the things that were behind. And yet, every Sunday morning, with a tie, a suit, his Bible under his arms, ready to war, ready to sing, ready to pray, ready to say, Amen. I went to visit him at the hospital right before he died. He could not remember me, but he could remember Christ. And I remember him trying to cast demons out of me. And Ruth got it. I'm so sorry. It's like, I love that. I hope that's me. I don't want to be just like Arthur Pink, that we all know him by his books, but sitting on a sofa by himself, all bitter alive. I want to be fighting to the point I'm dying. He could have said, I already fought a lot. I already did a lot. Now I'm just going to relax. No, every Sunday. Ruth, master, picking him up and he's ready to come to church. Think about John MacArthur. His old age. Ready to fight for the gospel. That's what we see right here. And that's how we must be. Never, never looking back and say, oh, I already accomplished a lot for Christ. I'm good now. No. Christ is so infinite. His love, His mercy, His grace is so profound that we need eternity to keep chasing after, hunting Him down. So my prayer is that we as a church will join our arms together as a band of brothers, as an army of Christ, and realize that there is much more to advance the gospel. Much more. No, 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 no. Looking back, grateful for the things of the past, absolutely. But not letting the things, the blessings of the Lord from the past now hinder us from pressing forward. There are many battles to fight, many souls to take hold for Christ, much territory to advance the kingdom of Christ by service, love, holiness, and suffering. So let us, just like Paul, say, Brothers, 
Look at each other. Sister, we have not already obtained that. But one thing we must do. Let's keep pressing forward. Because the battle is ours. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your love and Your care towards us. Thank for Your powerful Word. Thank for the power of Your mercy and grace upon our lives. Thank You for changing us, hunting us down, seizing us, capturing us, taking hold of us, laying hold of enemies and making them Your precious soldiers. There is no better Lord. There is no better Captain. There is no better General than Jesus Christ. We love to serve You. We are so thankful for all that You have done in the past, but we are not looking back and letting those things hinder us from pressing forward. Help us as a church to march forward by Your grace, by Your power, conquering sin, knowing Christ, loving the lost, taking the Gospel worldwide to enable us. We beg You. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.